hey, the Bible. You guys probably have one of these, even if you're not a Christian. Um, you might even still have one. Maybe your, gra- your great-grandma has a giant one somewhere in her house that's collecting dust or something. But you've at least all heard of the Bible. We have, uh, most of us in this room probably have one. Um, our modern world really thinks that the Bible is somewhat irrelevant to us. It might be helpful to learn some kind of tricks in life to be a little bit happier, but overall the Bible is somewhat irrelevant. In spite of this, though, no one can deny the profound impact that the Bible, even if you don't believe what Christians believe about the Bible, you can't deny the profound impact that the Bible has had on Western culture, um, and in particular the United States of America. But what is the Bible? What do we believe? What do Christians believe it is? Well, our culture borrows the language of Bible very often. Uh, The golfing Bible. You like golf? Go get the golfing Bible. Uh, The baking Bible. You you like to cook? Then you can get a Bible on cooking, right? How about the boating Bible? You can pretty much think of any hobby imaginable, and chances are there's a Bible. The baseball Bible. Just name it. The wrapping Bible. You know, you want to be like 50 Cent or, you know, Ice Cube and learn how to wrap. There's got to be a wrapping Bible. Someone look it up right now. I bet you there's one. Okay? You name any sort of hobby, um, chances are there's some, some Bible on that hobby. And why, why is it called a Bible? Why do, why do we borrow this language from our Bible? Well, these books claim to be exhaustive. In other, in other words, Everything that you're going to want to know about this is in here. Nothing's missing. It's almost like an encyclopedia, right? Also, it's accessible, like um, philosophy for dummies. In other words, we can read this and understand it. We don't have to be professionals. We don't have to be theologians, right? Also, we're, we're claiming a certain amount of authority. If you're getting a golfing Bible, I hope that it's written by someone who actually knows how to golf, right? So it's authoritative. Someone who knows what they're talking about actually wrote or contributed to this. Now, all of these, you know, quote-unquote Bibles are borrowing this idea from the Bible. Because the Bible is an exhaustive, accessible, and authoritative written rule from God himself, according according to Christians and according to the Bible itself. But is this true about the Bible? How can we expand upon what we claim it to be? And if we're right that that the Bible is God's word, if if this is indeed true and from God, how did the earliest people who received the Bible even know what it was and not just wrap fish with it? Right? How How did they know this? The Bible is the best-selling book in human history. Do you know that? You can, you can look this up. There's a bunch of different places you can go to online and encyclopedias and whatnot. The Bible is the best-selling book in human history. Did you know that the Bible has been translated into more languages than any other book in human history? <clears throat> you know that it's also demonstrated that if you just all of a sudden got rid of all the Bibles on the face of the earth, you just, I snapped my finger, right, and I'm like, you know, the, yeah, the glove, I'm like the glove in that movie, what, what is it called, the Avengers, I'm that guy, what's his name, Thanos, boom, all the Bibles are gone, all of a sudden, poof, they're, they're in, in uh, they're, 
put into dust. Did you know that just the writings of the early church fathers, just them, you know, so who are the, okay, let me explain to you who those are. You know, the 12 apostles, right? Um, Matthew, John, all of them. The early church fathers are like their disciples, the people they taught, okay? Just the writings of the early church fathers, in other words, books that they wrote about their faith, you can reconstruct the entire Bible with just their writings. I'm not including the, med- the, the medieval church. I'm not including secular works that quote scripture over and over again. Right? You can reconstruct the entire Bible from beginning to end just from books written about the Bible and books that aren't even written about the Bible. Isn't that incredible? That's the influence that the Bible has had on our culture. So no one can dispute, I think, the impact of the Bible. You might not like the Bible. You might disagree with what we think um, is true about the Bible. But you can't argue the fact that it has had incredibly profound impact on our world. Modern secular um, scholars consider the Bible to be simply a mere collection of beautiful myths. Have you ever heard this? So in other words, people, at, you know, at best... It's, it's a nice display. It's a beautiful display of poetry of what people believed, but it's not real. Right? So we can find some kind of like ethical resources and encouragements, but it's not God's word. It's a be- it, they're, they're simply beautiful myths, a collection of poetry, history, ethical treaties, a spiritual guidebook, but God's word, it is not. So that, that's kind of like the popular modern view on what the Bible is. There is this guy named Rudolf Boltmann, okay? Um, and Rudolf Boltmann wrote a seminal work, his seminal work, a book called The New Testament and Mythology. Now, he was a, a Bible scholar and a theologian um, what, who is what they call liberal, who did not believe pretty much in anything that the Bible says as far as miracles, so he denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Noah parting the Red Sea, all of these different things. He kind of popularized this view that anything that kind of smelled like a miracle in Scripture was simply just a myth um, that was created over time. And that has become the popular view in our modern secular world about what Scripture is. His thinking really dominates even a lot of churches, um, but especially kind of Ivy League schools that used to be divinity schools, right, like Brown or Harvard or Princeton. These schools um, still to this day are, are theological schools that teach um, would-be pastors or ministers. But the church, for the majority of human history and church history, has considered the Bible to be more than just nice mythical stories. The church has considered the Bible to be much more than this. That the Bible is authored by God himself and is a revelation of who he is and who we are. Now, your modern minds are twitching right now. It it just sort of does this thing to us that, really? Are you nuts? (laughs) Like, do you realize we put someone on the moon and you actually believe the Bible is God's word? Hopefully, as we go along... In this sermon series, you'll see why we're not, and you can, you can pick up books like Reason for God that
that will demonstrate why we believe actually as a Christian church, and even though not all Christian churches believe this, but this one does, this one agrees with historic Christianity that the Bible is not just a beautiful collection of poetry or advice, but it is God's word to us himself. That's what we believe at Refuge Church. We agree with that claim, and hopefully over time we can start to prove that to you, and through these resources you'll be convinced yourself. This morning, though, I would like to describe to you what the Bible claims itself to be. I'm not going to do much by way of proving that this is true. Um, That's another sermon for another time. But what does the, the Bible claim itself to be? The Bible claims itself to be four things, okay? Number one is that it is inspired. Number two, it is complete. Number three, it is revelation. And number four, it is transformative. And I'm going to explain each of these four things to you so you know what I'm talking about. It's inspired, it's complete, it is a revelation, and it is transformative. So let's take these things in turn. It's inspired by God. I got two verses for you from the New Testament. Okay, so you can write them down. Hopefully you've got a pen, and you can write these on the back of your program in the notes section. Okay? It's inspired by God. There's two New Testament texts that you can refer to. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read these to you. In, in the Peter passage, it says this, Understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is the testimony of what Scripture is. The prophets were the writers of Scriptures, the apostles, the prophets of the Old Testament. They're who... They're, they're, how, they're where we get the words of God from, okay? According to Peter, we know that these prophets weren't writing their own will. Does that make sense? That it wasn't based on their own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. That would be like me saying, I'm going to write you a letter, and I would say that my will did not write this letter, God's will did. Now, you might say I'm nuts, and you, might be, and you might kick me out, but that's what Peter is saying about Scripture. That it was, not the, it was not founded in some man's mind and their ideas about life and about God, but actually what they were writing was being communicated to them, and that sometimes is a mysterious thing. We don't really know exactly how every time it was communicated, but we know, according to Scripture, that the Holy Spirit moved them to write the mind of God and not their own mind. Does that make sense? That's the testimony of Scripture. Accept it or deny it, that's what the Bible says it is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired. Some of your translations might say God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is, in the Greek, theonousti, God-breathed. Theo is God, nousti is breath-breathed, God-breathed. 
like a pneumatic gun, right? Right, it's God-breathed, theonusti. When we say that Scripture is inspired by God, what we mean by this, and what these verses claim, is that they came, it was the breath of God. It wasn't my breath. You see, you're hearing me talk to you right now, unless you're sleeping already, right? Some of you might be. But, right, like you're hearing, what's moving my words is my own breath, my own mind, right? But according to Scripture, what moved these words was the breath of God. The Scriptures were God-breathed. So they didn't originate in the human will or in the human mind, but in the mind of God. Isn't that fantastic? God, it's, that tells us something about if there is a God about who he is too. That he isn't just some phantom that we can't know, but loves us and talks to us and wants to know us and wants us to know him if he speaks. The Bible inspired by God, let me unpack this a little bit more so you can understand more. So what we mean by inspired, it means three things. That God authored it, that it is without error, and that it is authoritative. Now these are some big deal claims, I know, but just follow me. Authored by God, I think, hopefully you understand already. God is the author of Scripture. It's not inspired like Shakespeare was inspired, what, right, when he wrote Hamlet or Macbeth. It's not inspired like Bach was when he wrote his amazing symphonies. Right? Like, what we mean by that is that they sort of got like this moment of clarity where they produced something so wonderful and so rare, right? But it still came from them. What we mean by this is that it didn't come from them. It, scriptures didn't come from the mind of the human writers, but God directed them, told them. It's his mind through them. Does that make sense? So it's authored by God. It's his mind, his breath, his idea. That has to mean that we believe that scriptures are without error. Okay, the fancy theology word for this is inerrant. It is without error. If it's authored by God, then it would need to be without error because if it had error, then that means that God would be able to be mistaken. And I don't want a God who is wrong sometimes. Right? We want a God who has all wisdom. And what we learned last week is that he has just that. So if he speaks something to us that's not true, that's how we know it's not God. Right? That's how we tell the difference. So if it's authored by God, it is without error. Psalm chapter 19 and the verse that we read to you this morning claims the word to be perfect, eternal, and unchanging. If the word is perfect, I'm just... No, I'm not an educated man. Yes, I am. I think. Um, but if the word is perfect, I wouldn't think that it would be wrong. I would think that something that's perfect is right. That's just my logic, but you can correct me, okay? <clears throat> Psalm 19, Psalm 119, the word of God is perfect, eternal, unchanging. It's repeatedly called truth, right? It's and as such, it cannot have error. Now, we have to have some qualifications, which I think they'll be up on the screen for you. The Bible, if we believe the Bible is without error, we have, to, we have to give you some qualifications so that you can understand this. Right away, you might be objecting. Well, what about all, the, all of the contradictions in Scripture and all this? I can't get into all of those tonight, but let me just give you some qualifications. Number one, the Bible at times records the words and actions of wicked people and events. Okay, so 
it records in Job that Satan lied to Job, tempted to Job, tempted Job, right, to sin against God, right? So it's a true recording of something that shouldn't have happened. Does that make sense? So not everything that you read in the Bible is instruction to us. It could just be a warning because of a mistake someone had made. Does that make sense? So the Bible at times records the words and actions of wicked people. These words are not God's command to us or his revelation of his will, but it's a perfect account of events that actually happened. And it's a perfect account of those events. Number two, so that's the first qualification. Second, we believe that the original writings to be without error. The Bible that we have today is a copy of what Paul and Peter and Moses and all of these originally wrote. We don't have the original writings. So what happened over time, you know, they didn't have Xerox machines, copying machines in 2000 BC. So what they did have, though, were scribes. And these scribes would copy um, important texts. The Bible would be one of them, right? So they would copy the texts. Um, if they made one mistake, they didn't get out their eraser and erase the mistake. They would throw the thing away and burn it. Right, so they would make perfect copies. Now, over time, though, there were some variants. Some of these copies, they call these textual variants. These are so minor, though, it's almost like the difference between spelling honor with an, with an O-R or an O-U-R. Does that make sense? So you could say, oh, like, that, that's a mistake, right? Like, which is, which is, which, well, it's not really a mistake, is it? So we, we, we believe the original writings to be without error, so... We're not saying, though, that the copies that we have aren't trustworthy. We're just saying we have to do some research to know what the original author wrote. Does that make sense? Okay, number three, apparent conflicts with science. This is probably the big one, right? Well, what about science? Um, apparent conflicts with science need to be, I mean, the Bible says things, this is the claim, the Bible says things that contradict science, so it's not perfect, it's got error, right? So uh, are you wrong, Kyle? Is the Bible actually perfect? Let's address this for a moment. Um, <clears throat> the Bible uses, this is one example of how we might think the Bible contradicts science. The Bible uses language at times to describe things as they seem, not as they are. Okay, so what I mean by that is it will say in certain poetry that the sun rises. Now, all of my scientists out there will know that the sun doesn't rise. Right? The, the sun is in orbit around the earth. And unless you're still kind of, you know, living in your mind 500 years ago and you think the earth is the center of the universe, sorry, science has de demonstrated that it is not. And we're actually rotating. Is it or revolving? Which one is it? around the sun, it's orbiting, okay, thank you, for, for the one that didn't know whether it was rotating or evolving. It, it, it's orbiting, right, around the sun. So we know that the sun doesn't rise. But hey, guess what? Did you know that the Naval Almanac uses the term sunrise? It's, they're not wrong. We know that they know that the, sun, that, that the sun isn't moving around us, but it's language used to describe how we see things as they are. It's called the phenomenon, that kind of language. So it's not, that's not an error. So we need to be careful to not just assume an error. That, like, that's one example, okay? Also, conflicts with science might be 
because we don't actually understand what the Bible is saying. Or we're making it say things that it doesn't say. Now, I'm going to step on some toes here. And some of you old-fashioned, conservative, fundamentalist Christians are not going to like me right now. Well, hopefully you still do. But I don't think the Bible says how old the earth is. That's just my understanding of it. Okay? So, for me, it's a moot point. If science says the earth is young, fine. If science says the earth is old, fine. I'm not going to say it contradicts the scriptures. But there are some Christians out there, though, that will insist, no, the, the entire universe is 6,000 years, 6, years old. Well, and science says it's much older than that. Well, which is it? My, my point here is simply to say that sometimes we make the Bible say things it doesn't say. So that the contradiction isn't a real one. Does that make sense? Um, okay. Sometimes, let's, be, let, let's play you know, the other side of this. Did you know that sometimes it might be possible that science is wrong? Did you know they have been in the past? Did you know that they, they even admit now that they might be wrong about things? Because the, the philosophy is, uh, is one of learning and growing. They don't know everything. They might make a discovery that might change their mind about some theory that they had 100 years ago that is so common in science throughout the history of the world. So is it possible that the contradiction is not the Bible's fault, but science's? Does that make sense? So we got to be careful before we're just quick to pull the, the trigger that the Bible is filled with mistakes because it contradicts science. Um, we just have to be careful and hesitate um, before we do that. Now, <clears throat> the fourth caution um, that we need to, to make here, when, we, when I say that the scriptures are without error, we have to add, um, fourthly, that the Bible contains various sorts of literature. Right? It contains poetry. It contains historical narrative. Do you know that poetry uses figures of speech, like similes and metaphors? Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Now, how many people think Jesus is in error there? Because we're not branches. No, we all know that he's just using poetic language. So that's an obvious one, right? We can kind of just really, really presume in that instance that Jesus is using poetry. But if you're not familiar with the scriptures as a whole, you might not, be know, you might not know that you're in poetry. And you're not supposed to interpret every word literally. Okay? Does that make sense? So sometimes you have to know how to study the Bible before you overinterpret the Bible. Okay? It might not be an error, it just might be a figure of speech or poetic language. Okay? But in conclusion, we still believe that because the word of the Lord is perfect, that it is without error. We just need to proceed with caution in, in that understanding of it being without error. Okay? The Bible inspired also means that it is authoritative. I think our slides are slowing down behind me, so why don't you guys advance a little bit so they can keep up. There you go. So it's authored by God, it's without error, and it is authoritative. Now what does that mean? So if it's authored by God, it's authoritative. Let's, let's consider this. If God has revealed himself to us as the author, not just the author of Scripture, but the author of you and me. If God has revealed himself to us as the author, the father 
of all creation and speaks to us within his word, in his creation, our consciences, then the word is authoritative. Now let's say, if, if I can give you an example of what I mean here. Let's say I paint a picture, right? And it's of a sunset. And, a, and it's got an ocean. And there's a boat floating. And I put my picture, my painting on display. And all you people are walking around admiring how wonderful it is. And you start pontificating about how you think it is really describing the, eg the, the existential crisis of the American culture. Right? And then another person will say, no, I think this is really describing like the inner turmoil of the lost poet. Right? Like, we all have our different interpretations. Well, I'm the author, in a sense. I painted it, right? So I come up to you and I say, look, it's just a boat. <laughs> I thought it was pretty. Okay? So who gets the right to say what it's about? I do. Because I painted it. Now, I'm not saying you can't, like, get other things from it because you're your own person, but ultimately, it's about what the author says it's about. Isn't that true? If God authored you and authored me, fathered you and fathered me and authored Scripture and fathered Scripture, if all of this is true, we don't get the right to say who we are or who he is. It means that I can't make up what I think he is. I can't make up what I think my purpose is. Now, I know, friends, I know this is the exact opposite of what our world tells us. It is not what our world tells us. You are who you want to be. You define it for yourself, and that's where you find your liberty in life. But let me just, let me just challenge. I'm going to push back a little bit on that, okay? And I've used this example before, but I see some new people, and I think it's a really helpful example. So humor me if you've heard me say this a million times. But if, if, if you're a toaster oven that lives in a world of blenders, and all your little toaster life you think you're a blender, okay? All your friends are blenders, and you see the wonderful smoothies that they make. They chop ice, and they mix up spinach, and oh, everyone loves the delicious shakes that come out of you. And, and you think, you're like Buddy the Elf, right? You think that you're a blender, and you start like, you know, but you're a toaster, and it just doesn't work when you put ice in those little slots in the top of your head, and you press the button, it just hurts, and sparks fly, and nothing blends, it just makes a mess. And your little toast, your little wannabe blender heart is just discouraged every live long day. But then one day, one day, a blender buddy of yours who loves you very much says, look, I just found this book and it's got your picture on it. It looks just like, like you. You should read this. And you start reading this book and you start realizing like, oh, I'm not a blender. Someone made me to toast bread. Like, it's okay that I can't blend up ice. I wasn't made for that purpose. So when you find your author, when you find your maker, you find your life. Did you hear me? You see, we think, no, I want to be who I want to be. But friend, can I, can I just challenge you to consider something? That if you operate by that principle, you are going to live a very unhappy and miserable life. Because there is a God who made you, who loved you, who made you in his image. And when you resist his image, it does not bring pleasure, it brings pain. You get it? God is the authority. 
The inspired word of God is authored by God, and therefore, when it speaks about who we are, we need to listen. We need to obey. We need to say yes. And when you do, that is the beginning of a most beautiful relationship in a wonderful and happy life. So the word of God is authoritative. Okay. I was going to say more about that, but I'll skip that. Um, okay. Number four. Number four? Number two. I'm getting lost here. Oh, the inspired by God. It's authored. It's without error. And it's authoritative. Number two, the word of God is not only inspired, but it's complete. And by this, what I mean is two things. It is completely or fully inspired. It's not just the red letters of Jesus. It's not just certain books in the New Testament. It's not like some people think, oh, the Old, the Old Testament God is kind of grouchy, right? And the New Testament God is nice. So maybe that's like the, the real word of God, and right? Like that's how we kind of think. You know, I, I got news for you. The God in the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are the same God. And that's what is so mysterious but amazing about our God. God is angry at sin every day and at sinners every day, but he loves you to death. You see, and really, if there's a God, we don't want him to be anything but that. How many people know when you've made a mistake, what is it you want? When you've hurt someone, when you've injured somebody, what do you want? Yeah, you want mercy. You want love. Don't you want that? But what about when someone hurts you, steps on your toes? What do you want then? Someone offends you. You want revenge, right? You want justice. Isn't it interesting that the way we think, we forbid God to think? You see, we want justice, but we want love. I got good news for you. God is, God is neither on, the, on its own. God is both. So, God, so, so injustice doesn't go unnoticed or undealt with by God. You want to live in a world without justice? Did you see what just happened yesterday? Do you really want a God who doesn't do anything about it? No one wants that. We, we say God is love, God is love, God is love. What we mean by that is that we want him to punish all the bad things that I think are bad, but the things that I don't think are bad that I do, I don't want him to punish. What? Like, really? Is that really how we think? Does, doesn't that make us God? That can't be right. See, friends, God... God's word is complete in its entirety. It's full. It speaks to us. We see of God, a God of angry wrath towards sin in one verse, and then three verses later, we see a God of patient and enduring love because he's both. You see, friends, God's word in its entirety, every word of scripture is inspired by God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not even the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the word until everything is accomplished. The, the King James Version, you might be more familiar with this if you're an old-time Christian, a jot or a tittle. 
not a jot or a tittle, not the, sh- the least. That means that not just the ideas in the Bible are inspired by God, but the words he used are inspired by God. You see, in its entirety, it's entirely tr- trustworthy. Number two, so f- first, every word of Scripture is inspired by God, but number two, the inspired wor- written words of God are full or complete. In other words, we don't add to them. We don't, co- we don't finish them later on in life. Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end, makes it clear that we're not to add to the words of God written by the prophets and the apostles. That's why we don't believe the writings of Muhammad or Joseph Smith in the Mormon church are actually God's word, inspired by God. Because scripture tells us that, that he inspired the prophets and the apostles. So the teaching of the scriptures revealed to us that the death of the last apostle, at the death of the last apostle, the written scriptures had been completed. They're finished. And watch this in 2 Peter chapter um, 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Everything that you need to know about you and to know about God to live a fulfilling life has been given to you. Nothing is left out. It's complete. Isn't that great? But not only is the word of God inspired, not only is it complete, it is revelation. It's revelation. Let me explain to you what I mean. How might any of you know of the nature and character of any other living person unless there was some kind of exchange, some kind of conversation. Isn't that true? That's what I mean by revelation. It's God revealing himself as a person to us so that we can know who he is. He's not just giving us instructions about how to build a house. Right? This is, this is a revelation of a person. <clears throat> In our conversations with new people, that you meet, you're revealing things about yourself. You're getting to know them. You might have some small talk, but even in that small talk, you're going to learn some things about that person. Perhaps that they're alive. They have a form of intelligence. Who they are, where they're from, what they do. There's all sorts of things that we can learn about each other from our conversations. Let's say you never met me in your life, okay? But you're going to buy my house, right? I got, I got a house in Warren. You're going to buy it. It's for sale. So you go in. You never met me in my life. And you go in and you start walking around my house. You're going to learn things about me and my wife and family just by walking around and looking at our stuff. You're going to see pictures on our walls. You're going to start concluding, he must be married. He must have kids. Right? You're going to see our big, giant TV in our living room. And, and presume he probably watches TV sometimes. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't always have his, his nose in, in a book. That's okay. You're going to see my tools and see that I'm a wannabe carpenter, okay? Because I don't have the expensive ones, I have the cheap ones, right? And when you look at the things in the house that are a little crooked, you're going to know, okay, this guy tries, right? You're going to learn things about me. Isn't that true? I could go in your car and probably learn some things about you. You start rifling through your purse or your wallet, right? We're going to learn things, some things about each other. So you might know th- these things about, ch- about each other, but you don't really know me, do you? You don't know, know me. You just maybe know that I exist, you know a few facts about me, but you don't really know me. You never met me. You know, the Bible says that there are things that you know about God because of what he's created in the same way like you could know me by just walking through my house. 
we walk around the woods and we just presume we're on a mountain and we just presume something must have put us here. This is complicated. This is complex. It's more complex than my iPhone. I mean, there must be a creator, an architect that made all these things. You start to learn, you know things about God. Romans 1 tells us that since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities have been understood by what has been made. We can know certain things about God. Psalm 19 says that the creation declares the glory of God. You can just, if you have eyeballs and you look around, you're going to start to learn things about God. Okay? But you don't know, know him, do you? You see, you don't really know me until I show up and I say, hey, how you doing? I'm Kyle. This is my wife, Mandy. These are my children. And we start having conversations. You hear about my past. I start serving you. Right? This exchange happens. And now you really start to know me. See, the Bible says you can know God in a general way by just looking around you. But unless he reveals himself to, to you, you, re- you won't know, know him. You won't know him as you know a friend. You see, that's what scripture is. It's God's attempt to know you and for you to know him as a friend. Isn't that great? That he isn't just the architect, the maker, that just kind of puts us off on our own. But he reveals himself to us. Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. So the scriptures are revealing the mind of God about a person who loves you and wants a relationship with you. So God didn't just write an inspired book to teach us how to fix an engine, right? He could have done that, but he revealed something about you. You want to know who you are? Read scripture. You want to know who God is? Read scripture. See, because God says, I, insp- I breathed out who I am through the prophets and apostles so that you would know me. You want to know him? Turn to him. And finally, this leads us all to the whole purpose of this, and that is transformation. The word of God, it will, in other words, it will change your life. When you start to know God through what he has said to you, through a relationship with him, it will change your life. It's not simply a part of our wholeness or happiness. We don't grab a bit of Jesus, a little of Buddha, some of Mohammed, maybe a little bit of Karl Marx, right? Smush them all together and we wind out a happy whole person. Scripture says, I am, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the only life. And it says that in him was life and that life was the light of men. In him is life. And he is the word made flesh. All of Scripture is Jesus Christ demonstrating himself and God to us so that you would know him and be transformed by him. God's word is not God. That's an important statement. And here's why it's important. If God's word were God, you could separate the word from the person. Okay? Karl Marx had a philosophy of government and life. It's really not about Carl, though, is it? It's more about the philosophy. It's about what he believed, about what human government should be in all this, right? You can disassociate his philosophy from him because the point was not Carl. The point was, I wonder if people called him Carl. Hey, Carl. I just don't think so. But because the point, the point wasn't, sorry about that. 
The point wasn't Carl. The point was his philosophy. God's word is the opposite. The point to God's word is God. It's him. It's knowing him. The real personal being. It's not the ideas that we love. It's him that we love. It's those ideas that lead us to him. See? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peace be yours in abundance when you really know God in Christ. You want abundant peace in your heart? Know the Lord. Know him. He speaks to you in his word every day. Pick it up and know it and get that peace you're looking for. See, he offers it to you. You know what the word says that God's word is? Honey in the mouth. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. It's food for the hungry. Job 23, 12. It dwells in us richly. In Colossians 3.16. It's a lamp for our feet. We read that. A light to our path. It's true. And it is righteous in Psalm 119. It's a delight to our heart in Jeremiah 15.16. It renews your mind in Romans 12.1 and 2. It's a fire that burns in your heart in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates your thoughts and attitudes in Hebrews 4.12. It's perfect and trustworthy. It is more precious than gold, and it is a great reward in Psalm chapter 19. That's the word of God. It's inspired, it's complete, it reveals him, and therefore it can transform you if you simply go after it and believe it and trust it. You see, perfect it is. So Christianity basically, is the Bible. God speaks, and he speaks to you. Are you listening? Do you hear him? I hope today you will. Let's pray. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Your laws endure to this day. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your word, for by them you have preserved our life. The wicked are waiting to destroy, but we will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I set a limit, but your commands are boundless. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Oh God, we thank you, Lord, this morning that there is a God, that you sent your son Christ, and that you spoke to us. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I pray, Lord, that, uh, I pray that you would. I pray that you would understand very simply that God speaks, desires relationship with you, loves you, created you for that purpose, but our sin has separated us from him. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ died the death you deserved, so that you might be reconciled to God, hear him, love him, and know him. Be declared his son and have eternal life. What light that will bring you. Friends, cry out to Jesus right now. Save me, God. I'm a sinner. 
I haven't listened. You've been speaking, and I haven't listened. I pray, Lord, that um, you would, that I would know you. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross and rose again, that you speak to, to me through him and have spoken to me. Oh, friend, if you believe that, you are saved. You are delivered from death to life. You know why you're here on this earth. You have your purpose. God, we thank you for this wonderful morning where we get to delight in who you are and what you've said. I pray, Lord, that we would be people of the word, that we would listen to you and hear you, that scripture would not be left on our bookshelf, but that we would hear it, love it, believe it, that it would be honey to our tongue. I pray, God, now that you would bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.